Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Hi. Welcome to the Murthy Law Firm's monthly teleconference series. Thank you so much for joining us. Today I have with me Dana DeLott, a senior attorney at the firm, and Joel Janovich, who's also been for several years with the firm. And by the way, I didn't introduce myself, but I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. We're delighted and honored to have all of you here with us, uh, making time. Happy New Year to everybody. So. We're just giving you a big overview, a broad overview of the changes that occurred in 2015 during the calendar year in immigration law and how these changes could potentially impact you and your business. So we'll talk a little bit about the executive actions. As many of you know, we start off way back from, I guess, end of 2014 when President Obama announced a bunch of executive actions, which took most of the year, calendar year 2015 to get implemented in one fashion or the other, and then move on to additional changes either in policy or regulations, including the fact that we've had a very, very recent uh, announcement as recently as December 30th, uh, 2015, so just a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, or couple days ago. Uh, well, the one was a couple days ago about the whole issue. And then there was one from a couple weeks ago on December 18th, which I know has been alarming and gotten a lot of media coverage in newspapers across the globe, particularly in India, with the concerns about the $4,000 per H-1B and 4500 per L-1 petition for companies with certain, that fulfill a certain criteria who will be penalized with these additional fees. But you know what? Dana and Joel are going to go over that with, with all of us to talk about it and share that information with you. But let's get quickly go over the overview at this time. So broadly, let's get started. Joel, would you like to share a little bit about the H-4 EAD program? Yes, thank you, Sheila. Um, so you, as employers, you're probably already aware, you may even have some employees on uh, H-4 who received an EAD and are working for you. Um, if you aren't aware somehow or if you, you haven't heard about this, um, commencing on May 26 of this past year of 2015, uh, certain H-1B spouses, uh, spouses of H-1B workers, became eligible to apply for employment authorization documents. Um, you as the employer will not be sponsoring them. You do not need to sponsor them. This is something they file on their own based on the H-1B spouse either having an approved I-140 or having extended H-1B status beyond the standard six-year uh, maximum based on a pending green card case. And so, again, they're very, they're a huge number of, of eligible H-4 work, uh, of H-4 spouses right now who re have received employment authorization or are in the process of obtaining it uh, that may already be working for you. A lot of them have uh, very high educations. Maybe they weren't counted against the cap. And it, as an employer, it does give you an extra option to uh, potentially employ some of these people. And the very good point or the important point, I guess, is that to the extent that one of your valued H-1B employees has completed the six years, but for whatever reason, the green card wasn't actually started, but the spouse of that person happens to be on H-4 with an I-140 petition approval, then the wonderful option exists for you as an employer to hire that individual with the H on the H-4 EAD 
because that's one more option, um, you know, to opt for the H4EAD so that they can continue to work for you or, and, or your company right here in the U.S. Okay, so Dana, let's jump from H1B, the H4EAD and program, to now the L1B-related issues. Yes, Sheila. The USCIS issued a memo with guidance for the L1B category that's effective uh, or went into effect back in August, uh, August 29th, 2015. And that addresses an issue of defining specialized knowledge for these L1B multinational employees. The goal of that memo uh, was a directive from President Obama who said he wanted to provide clear guidance on the meaning of specialized knowledge and bring greater integrity to the program. Um, many people were hopeful that what this meant was uh, that it would bring some change to the uh, high Positive levels of- Positive news, less denials. Right, less denials so that we, because we would have clarity on our standards rather than just sort of whatever an examiner wants to, uh, to do. Um, but by and large, the memo, it, it just consolidates the prior guidance that we've had over quite a number of years. So while on a good side, it brings all the guidance together in, in one document, um, it's really too early to tell whether it's going to have much impact or it's just sort of rehashing the past. So just too early to, to know what that's going to do for employers that use the, the L1 category. Okay. L1B. So so those are so those are the two big ones that many apply with the H4 EAD and the L1B memo that every that employers were eager. Now many of you as employers may not be as aware of the revised visa bulletin system that went into effect from October of 2015 where under this new revised system the US Department of State basically has two kinds of uh, different sort of, um, if you will, dates. The first one is like the what they call the final action date, which is similar to what always existed. And now a new system, which has so called something called the dates of filing, where people who are eligible will actually be able to file the I-485 earlier than having to wait for the priority date to actually finally become current. This in turn translates into employees of yours who have labor petitions or perm approvals and I-140 petition approvals to potentially being able to file their I-45s earlier and therefore be eligible for EAD and AP extensions instead of you as the employer having to incur additional fees filing H-1 extensions, even though sometimes it might be safe for an employee to have to do that. So the bottom line is that the structure of the changes overall stays the same, but there's this new facility that's available, which is far more favorable, tends to be far more favorable, though it's not as favorable as people were hoping that it would Mm be. Exactly. Uh, That's right, Sheila. And so far, we've only had the system in place since October of 2015. We haven't seen much of a difference as far as the the visa bulletin dates moving, um, especially for some of those uh, heavily backlogged categories, uh, Indian for EB2, uh, China and India for EB3 especially. And, Joel, as you know, you can't always use the data filing chart. So even though it's out there, Mm. it... We have to wait for the USCIS to tell us yes or no yes, at the beginning crazy. of they each were, it month. It's almost better that they didn't They seem to be saying it. no more than yes, yes, which is very confusing. There's a lot of giving giving with the right hand and then taking away with the left hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so far, we haven't seen much of a difference. How this is going to affect you as an employer, is it's a little soon to tell. For the most part, you probably aren't going to see a huge difference other than 
if the priority dates start moving forward, just you know, as as it's always been, but if they move a little bit more quickly or make it a little easier to file, um, employees are going to have more of an option to to potentially port after 180 days for AC21. Um, that can be good and bad. Obviously, you can bring in employees that weren't working for you. You may have sponsored employees who may then leave you. So obviously, employers are going to have to be cognizant of that and look on how they can retain good employees and, uh, and potentially even attract other employees that are porting. Okay. So next, we'll touch very briefly upon the Simeo Solutions, the H-1B amendments, to be, that have to be filed by U.S. potential em- as employers or potential employers of H-1B candidates when there's just a change, generally as an H-1B employer, to just change in the work location as opposed to um, other substantive changes. And even though it's not a final executive au- uh, action by the president, it is a very big change when the Administrative Appeals Office issued a decision in April of 2015 in the matter of the of Simeo Solutions, which now requires that employers file an H-1 amendment prior to moving the H-1B worker to a new worksite location, which was not included in the prior H-1B petition. So the old rule of just filing the so-called amended LCA without incurring any USCI's filing fees is no longer an option after this case dis- uh, was decided. And we have discussed this in prior multi-law firm monthly teleconferences with U.S. employers. Right. And this, any, any employer of H-1s that is not familiar with this yet really needs to do so immediately, perhaps right after this teleconference, <laughs> um, because there is, there is a deadline and an ongoing uh, practice that, that should have been put in place. The, if a amendment is needed uh, for, a, for a worker that was relocated after April 9th, but before August 19th, 2015, that amendment must be filed by January 15th, 2016. And so, again, that already should have been done or should be pretty much ready to file if, if, if an employer needs to do one of those or more than one. Uh, and then everyone, for all other H-1 employees, since August 19th, 2015, if there is a change in the place of employment that's not covered by the existing LCA, then the employer must file an amended or new H-1 petition, not just the LCA, a whole new petition, along, of course, with the, the approved LCA, uh, before the worker begins working at the new location. So this is really important for all employers of H-1B workers to comply with, with these requirements. Thank you, Dana. So let's continue on because there's a lot of, lot of interesting, exciting, and somewhat not so exciting changes. Uh, so the next big thing, the, the executive action issue, which President Obama had mentioned back in November of 2014, but which was implemented, was the same or similar memo for AC21 green card portability. So the draft memo has been released. Again, it's only a proposal, even though people are getting very excited about it, which helps to define whether a new job is the same or similar as the sponsored petition, sponsored position. So if you're the green card sponsoring employer that has employees, for whom you file the case, potentially if you are promoting them and they are growing within your organization, you may no longer have to start a fresh perm and fresh I-140 or if they're changing jobs, which may be less exciting for you unless you're getting an employee uh, from another person's employer-sponsored petition. The issue is that the new employment or new job duties must be same or similar. 
Details on the definition of those terms have been written about in our Murthy Law Firm articles as well. But it is somewhat um, constrictive in the sense we were hoping it would be far broader and it has provided some leeway. And But again, for you as employers, most likely it would be the responsibility of the employee that whom you're hiring who's going to focus and discuss with the lawyer whether the job is either the same or similar. And the Department of Labor, GOT codes and different, they've looked at different criteria. And this is obviously a key requirement to move to a new job pursuant to the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act or AC21. And it's obviously, as I said, still in a draft phase with public comments, which are under consideration. Of course, we are amazing legal team at the Murthy Law Firm has been working on providing meaningful and analytical comments to the government. They've been submitted. They were submitted uh, Friday. Friday. Oh, good. So they were recently submitted by the Murthy Law Firm to try and try to get the best possible read on how we can help employers and employees. Joel, um, are there any other pending changes? Yes, there is a, I don't know if exciting is the right term or not, but there is a proposed regulatory change for the F1 uh, optional practical training OPT program for STEM extensions. Um, there was a lawsuit that effectively uh scheduled for the termination of the existing STEM OPT program in February of this year, February of 2016. And the court recognized the importance of this program and gave the government sufficient time to try to implement a new regulation. So a proposed regulation was was issued. Um, in the proposal, what they would do is extend, right now you get uh, up to a 17-month 17, 17 STEM OPT extension. This would increase it to 24 months, um, in addition to a few other changes. So that is exciting. We, are, we were happy to see that. It also puts, however, a lot of additional onus on the employer um, as far as creating a uh, a program to submit to the USCIS to show what it is the person's going to be doing, how they're going to be supervised. They're putting a whole bunch of extra um, kind of obstacles on employers to do this. And that is something that we have not been happy about, the students have not been happy about, the employers have not been happy about. Um, it seems to con- go counter what, what the president had, it had indicated he wanted to do with this program. So we'll see what changes are in store, whether or not the new program will go into effect. And I think, Dana, you wanted to give a, an update on that. Right. There, well, the update is that the DHS has requested another three months delay in the, the February expiration of the STEM OPT because they are not going to be able to get a replacement regulation uh, in or finalized before that date. Uh, the reason for this mainly is that, as Joel mentioned, they put in all sorts of extra uh, complicated uh, additional provisions in their draft regulation, and that generated some incredible number like 50, of comments. 50,000 comments, something like something that. Something like a record number. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it was, I, th- I believe, a record number of comments. They have to review those comments, consider them, etc. And they simply can't do it in the time that they have remaining. So they have asked the court for an additional three months uh, so that we won't, you know, past February. So, so we'll see what happens there. And really beyond that, it's just a lot of uncertainty surrounding the STEM OPT. And that has a 
potential to have you know disruption for the workforce for those employers that rely on these people uh, and even for employers that rely on people that have been out of school a little longer um, if you disrupt the people at, at, at this stage a, a year or so after they graduate they won't be here a couple years from now when when uh, when you need a more experienced worker so something does need to be done with this and it almost sounds like with the formalized what we they call the formalized mentoring and training plan the MTP it almost sounds a little bit like the H3 trainee pro it's almost mm-hmm. like they're trying to in- introduce multiple make it not as easy for an employer to hire and i think because there's this huge uh, lobbying force you know where people are concerned that students are coming and taking away foreign students, international students are coming and taking away jobs. So let's be protective and therefore create this H three sort of mentoring and training program, which is kind of defeats the whole purpose because the idea was these are such highly sought after, smart, bright, highly educated people, primarily in the STEM areas that we desperately need because we have a shortage in America in with people doing these tasks. They were trying to tighten it up to make sure that the OPT work was connected or is connected to the degree as it's supposed to be. But they went a little overboard with requiring such detail and employer involvement and everything else. So let's let's see where it lands. Okay. Okay, great. So the next thing that we want to touch upon briefly with you is, as I mentioned earlier, the very, very recent change that happened end of Uh, 2015, which was on Wednesday, December 30th, right before the start of the New Year's Eve, the Department of Homeland Security issued a proposed rule which they titled Retention of EB1, EB2, and EB3 Immigrant Workers and Program Improvements Affecting High-Skilled Non-Immigrant Workers. The basic idea was that this proposal would make a number of changes to immigration law and so we're going to talk, discuss briefly. I'm going to have Joel and Dana help as we kind of try to analyze it and discuss the brief overview of some of the significant proposed changes. So, Joel, if you would start off maybe with the priority date mm-hmm. retention issue. Yeah, there, there was a lot of excitement coming into this rule. And once it was released, I think there was a great deal of disappointment. Um, but there are some good nuggets in, in the, uh, the rule. Uh, one of the issues they do indicate is that if you have an approved I-140, um, this rule would clarify that the beneficiary is able to keep that priority date unless the I-140 is revoked due to an error, fraud, or misrepresentation, um, or if there's a, a revocation or invalidation of the, of the uh, connecting labor certification. Um, in practice, this is generally how the USCIS has long been operating. We've seen a few minor exceptions to that. Um, so in some respects, this, this is positive that they are going to kind of uh, indicate this in writing, that this is going to be their policy. Um, I don't, Dana, if you want to talk but, a little bit about, about the, re- the yeah, restrictions. Yeah, before we do that, you know, before Dana gets into it, really, I guess the idea was all along there was this issue of fraud or misrepresentation or revocation due to error. The annoying part is that giving a future immigration officer the idea of saying, oops, the prior one was approved in error, Mm -hmm. again opens the door and doesn't give stability to either the employer or the employee that's going to hire somebody on the basis of a prior I-140 approval. And that is something we're going to raise in our our comments um, that are a major concern with with this proposal. Right. That, which is absolutely correct because the Fraud or misrepresentation is, is one thing, but error, sometimes they come back years later with essentially an oops, 
And, you Oops, know, we shouldn't have approved this. And even the fraud sometimes, I mean, I know people say fraud, and we all agree if it's true fraud, but there are times they'll be like, well, the employer, you know, didn't have the proper information or didn't. Well, and it was approved and years later it was like revoked. It's like very, it gets into almost a slippery slope gray area at times. Right. And, and you know, well, personally, I think there needs to be a point where people and employers can rely on a decision. And, you know, the government simply needs to review its cases properly, make decisions. And again, we need some point of reliability. Sort of exactly the whole issue about almost... Um, you have to be second guessing things after the fact when you can't even get evidence to argue in your favor and all of that. But exactly. Anyway, that's we we will address that in the comments. Let's hope that that has some. What impact. about the restrictions on I one hundred and forty revocation? Right. So related there as a related rule, they once an I one hundred and forty has been approved for one hundred and eighty days or more, the USCIS will then only be able to revoke it based upon error, fraud, or misrepresentation, or if they invalidate the uh, underlying labor certification. So, with that, even if the petitioning employer requests withdrawal of the I one hundred and forty, again after one hundred and eighty days, the USCIS won't actually revoke the I one hundred and forty. So once they reach one hundred and eighty days, the I one hundred and forty is in place. I guess they won't revoke the I one hundred and forty as far as the foreign national ben- employee or beneficiary is concerned, but potentially they couldn't hold the employer liable under that if the employer says. I'm done. So it's kind of interesting. Well, they don't touch be, upon or discuss it, but obviously I think... It hope. won't be valid with respect to a job. You can't move forward with a green card case on it. There is an open question on what that means for the employer's wage <coughs> wage obligation and ability to pay uh, for future I-140s. And we were studying that issue um, actually just today, and we'll include that in our comments also. Okay. And on another level, what this could mean, well, is if the beneficiary needs to extend the H-1B status beyond the standard six-year maximum time frame, then the I-140 petition that has now not been revoked uh, because the 180 days have passed could be used as the basis to request future extensions, whether it's in the three-year increments or one-year in- increments, even when the employee, the H-1B employee worker, moves to a different H-1B employer. Right. And uh, one thing to keep in mind, so if you as an employer are hiring one of these workers, they have an approved I-140 that's been approved for more than 180 days. Um, even if the, the previous employer withdraws, you should still be able to use that to extend uh, H-1B status beyond that, that six-year, uh, standard six-year max. Note, however, that does not mean you can then use that I-140 when the priority date becomes current to file the 40 for, for the beneficiary to file the 45. You still would need to file a new perm case for the individual or, or any type of, of green card case that they would uh, be qualified for in order to for that person to be able to use that uh, or be able to uh, then file a 45. In other words, that they're going to need to get a new I-140 through you in order for you to be able to sponsor them for permanent residency. That's because they have not filed the I-485 to take advantage of the AC-21, Correct. same or similar. Okay. Would this be a complete solution to the I-140 priority date retention concerns, Dana? Uh, no, but I believe we've already largely covered what our concern was, that um, I- this issue of being able to revoke later, claiming that it's an error. Um, again, fraud and misrepresentation is one thing, although you're right, it does have issues where, you know, how can you argue it after the fact? But the the error issue, where they're second-guessing themselves years later, uh, we, we, we think it just leaves a... a 
open set of problems that doesn't need to be there. Completely agreed. I think it is. We have to have certainty, which is the whole purpose of trying to finalize and put everything down, whether it's in a memo or whether it's in guidance or whether in these regulations. Now, in a new, somewhat exciting issue from an employee's point of view, but also for an employer, because at the end of the termination of the H-1B period under the previous rules, all you had was about 10 days prior to the start date of the H-1 petition that an employee was allowed to enter the U.S. or was given up to 10 days after the petition end date in terms of a grace period to stay in the U.S., to pack up, to leave, to get settled, what have you. Now... The, the, under the proposed rule, the Department of Homeland Security would provide a grace period to other non-immigrant workers who are on E1, E2, E3, as well as what the H1 that we just discussed, and for L1s. So ENL workers, the proposed rule would grant a similar 10-day grace period to those requesting admission in EL and TN status. But then there's an even more exciting longer than just the 10 days, up to 60 days. And Joel? Yeah, the 60-day rule is something that has been long missing. Um, and basically, if someone, if uh, this is going to apply to workers in E, L, T, N, H-1B, or H-1B-1. Um, so if you suddenly lose your job as the employee, uh, the, they're going to give you, if this rule goes into effect, again, it's only a proposed rule, they would give you up to 60 days. Uh, on a one a one time period of sixty day uh, for sixty days to, uh, additional status to seek new employment, seek a change of status to a different uh, non immigrant classification, or make prepare preparations to depart the U S. Um, it's not clear yet what it means by a one time sixty day period. Does that mean every time you you get a new H one B petition, you get a new sixty day grace period if you lose that job, or is it one time for the individual for his life? or her life, we don't know yet. Um, but again, this is only a proposed rule, but if it goes through this will, I think um, it's pretty non-controversial. Workers should not suddenly have to depart the U.S. if they lose their job you know, that very day, which is how the, the current rules uh, um, operate. Mm-hmm. And so this is, I guess, a significant benefit. Oh, absolutely. It, and it's realistic. Um, you know, the, the current state of affairs with if someone loses their job and doesn't get any notice or doesn't get much notice, uh, they're out of status. I mean, I, I have to explain that to people every day, and it still doesn't make any sense why there's such an unworkable rule. Um, so, yes, this would absolutely be a significant benefit both to workers as well as employers because, you know, employers looking to hire someone who was recently uh, laid off will be able to do so in a more business-friendly, realistic way. Without requiring the employee to travel around the country, return back, all of those. They can be more confident that it, right, exactly, can get them on board as as quickly as any one can be filed. With the extension of status, with change of employer. So let's go to the next rule, which I think many were very, very excited about because that was meant to be the be-all and end-all solution with uh, issuance of uh, EAD cards based on the I-140 approval. Um, but, of course, there's always, what did they say, many a slip between the cup and the lip here. There was clearly a lack of clarity or rather more of a, uh, there was more brouhaha than actually anything substantive in the sense that the specifics have been released and the biggest concern is to qualify based on being a beneficiary of an approved I-140 petition for those who are in valid E3 
or H1B or H1B1 or O1 or L status, the person must be able to provide evidence of compelling circumstances that justify an independent grant of employment authorization. Yeah, th- th- this I-140 AD rule, there's probably no one provision other than maybe the H-480 that, is, that got the immigrant community more excited. And this one was really, really disappointing. Um, we in the immigration law circles, we didn't understand how it was possibly going to work because an EAD is not status, and that's something people don't typically understand. Um, and we weren't clear on how this is going to work, and now we've learned, and it doesn't seem like it's going to help very many people. That being said, there are the occasional employer that may benefit from this. Um, the government has yet to define what compelling circumstances means. Um, however, they did give a list um, of several circumstances that would be considered uh, compelling circumstances, including serious illness or disability, employer retaliation, or significant disruption to the employer. And then they give one example of this, which would be if someone's an, uh, an H-1B cap-exempt position, they're working, conducting important biomedical research for a cap-exempt entity, suddenly, unexpectedly, the funding changes to a cap-subject institution, the worker's never been counted against the cap, and then suddenly they need this worker, but because of the cap issue, they can't keep them. Um, it may be possible for in this situation to get an EAD as a stopgap measure. Um, but as Dana is going to, I think, explain, you're, there's a whole bunch of problems with this rule. But even then, to get this EAD, obviously, you still need to have had the I-140 approved, Correct. which is a fundamental basis. Okay? Right. And, and Right. So, And then, in addition to the one sort of really uh, obscure example that they provided in there is a situation where you could mm-hmm. get this EAD, uh, they list some situations where it would not be considered to be a compelling circumstance, and that would include uh, approaching the statutory maximum time period. So if people are getting close to six years on an H-1, that's not an excuse, uh, or circumstances that were in the control of the applicant. Um, you know, Really, I think for employers, the probably the biggest issue on this rule is that um, their employees may be clamoring for these EADs, thinking that it's available to them, et cetera, and they're going to have to, you know, work with kind of uh, setting expectations uh, that, that, that we really don't have a big benefit here if this stays as it is. Um, one of the major reasons that it will not be likely to benefit most foreign nationals uh, is that even if they can get the EAD, they have to give up their non-immigrant status. That puts them in a situation where they aren't going to be able to change to a different status in all likelihood. Uh, typically, they'd have to give up adjustment of status in the green card case and have to try consular processing. There may be some procedural issues there uh, because of the, the status gap. Um, for people who are able to get the CAD, the, it will be issued for up to one year, and then it can only be extended if the priority date is less than one year from the cutoff date listed in the visa bulletin. So again, a really... That is very limited. So, I, 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 that's very hard to wrap my head around this yeah. one too. Of, of who really would would benefit. The from more this. the more confusing and difficult it is. Don't worry. If you're working with the Murthy Law Firm, you're in great hands because we are familiar with all of these changes. And if you're not working, it's high time you work with the best law firm. But l- we have a couple more uh, really important issues, and we are always mindful that to try and stick between the 30 and 45 minutes during our monthly conference calls with you guys because we really want to share the latest, best, most useful information. So there's the other rule about the automatic extension of EA 
AAD rule, which actually would Finally, be extremely <laughs> helpful for most employers and employees. And this doesn't limit it just to the I-140 EADs that both Dana and Joel just discussed with you. But under this proposed rule, the validity of certain EADs would automatically be extended for up to 180 days if certain requirements are satisfied. So before, if it got over, even if you'd applied for it three or four months earlier, too bad. You had to wait for the approval of the EAD. Now they're saying we'll make exceptions if certain conditions are met. And Joel, do you want to share yeah, some of the conditions? So to qualify, you're going to need to file your EAD renewal application prior to the expiration date of your existing EAD. Um, and your renewal request is going to have to be made typically within the same category as the existing EAD. Um, there, are, they, uh, According to the proposed rule, again, these are proposed rules. You can't use them yet. Um, there are 15 categories of employment authorization that would be covered by this rule. The biggest one for employers is if you have an EAD based on a pending 485. Um, unfortunately, if you have an EAD based, if you're an H-4 worker on uh, EAD, this rule does not cover you. So you're going to need to still wait to get your EAD approved before you can um, before you can continue working if there's a gap. But um, otherwise, you can get up to 180 days based on a pending EAD application um, if you have that I-45, uh, an EAD based on that pending I-45, and a few other categories such as uh, asylees and, and a few other. But the standard non-immigrant classifications are not covered for this. Yeah, and I know some of you might be thinking, well, if it's only a proposal, why are we w wasting our time and your time and everybody's time discussing it? Because by and large, in majority of the cases, majority of the proposed regulations or rules tend to actually finally get implemented after the government takes feedback and gets, you know, some sort of response. I know in certain rules, if they get 10,000 responses, they're going to look at it differently than if they get 10 responses. And also the tone and the manner and who's replying and why. But if there's, if there's no responses and no feedback on a proposed rule, which is highly unlikely, then the government tends to end up implementing it similar to what they proposed, uh, subject, obviously, to getting feedback from people. So the reason we're sharing it is this is how they're thinking right now, and this is how they're going to go ahead steamrolling all of us unless there's a good reason to change their policy. And besides these two pending rules that we've discussed with you, there are a couple of other provisions that President Obama had discussed back in November of 2014 that are supposedly still in development. I don't know how many of these will affect you all on the phone call today, on the conference call, but there's something called the National Interest Waiver Eligibility for inventors and researchers and entrepreneurs because the USCIS really wants to clarify the availability of the NIW EB2 category uh, including eligibility for inventors, researchers, and entrepreneurs, because obviously America would love to have more of such people. And even though we don't have a whole lot of details about it, um, the director of the USCIS, Leon Rodriguez, signaled uh, recently, just a, uh, in, in end of towards end of 2015, a year later, that this is very much in the works, and the government's looking to to wrap this up. Right. And they also were proposing, although, again, same same terms, no details, although uh, so they say that they're working on it, um, a parole program, which would allow uh, admission, but not actually a status, uh, for certain in promising inventors, researchers, entrepreneurs uh, to be able to just come into the U.S. and kind of get their foothold so before they qualify, actually, for an NIW. But if they 
are very promising and have financing and all the rest of that uh, then and are likely to create jobs, then there's possibility that they would give them parole to come in, try to get that done, and then qualify for, for okay. a benefit. So although we don't have a whole lot of details or specific timetable, again, USCIS Director Leon Rodriguez has mentioned fairly recently that their agency, the USCIS, is working quite actively towards actually implementing something towards this. So if you are in the research business, if that's what your business is and you want to bring in some key people, there's a possibility to be on the lookout for this as as an employer. So let's now jump to the last and final issue that, uh, to, for, for today, this afternoon's discussion, which is the immigration provisions in the omnibus spending bill, which, as many of you know, was again another Christmas present, I guess, holiday present, just a week before the holidays on December 18th of 2015, an omnibus spending bill was passed into law that includes several immigration provisions. And I don't know whether I was being sarcastic in talking about the, the gift because a lot of employers that are meet certain criteria will have this huge fee increase that goes into effect. And I guess Joel's going to discuss it briefly. Yeah, th- this bill is almost 200 pages long and they kind of snuck this in. Um, the, the the fees are a fee of $4,000 for H, per H-1B petition or $4,500 per L-1 petition. Um, the employers that would be subject to this are companies that have at least um, that have more than 50 employees in the U.S., where at least 50% of the employees are in H-1B or L-1 status. So again, that's 4,000 per H-1B petition, 4,500 per L-1 petition. Um, this and serves. Joel, t- that that's the same fee that used to be 2,000 and 2,500. Yes, yeah, so it right? is, and they doubled it. And not only did they double it, but now they're going to be subject to this fee even if um, when you're filing the extension. So the initial petitions. Uh-huh. And the extension, um, so employers are not happy. Uh, I, I know that um, Modi reached out to President Obama about this prior to being signed to law. They're talking about suing in the World Trade Organization, um, saying this is discriminating against Indian c- companies since it almost exclusively applies to these large Indian tech companies. Um, but for right now, that this is the law of the land. Okay, what about the visa waiver program, people? The yeah, the visa waiver program, which applies to a listed group of companies, uh, com- sorry, countries, uh, essentially as a as a um, where they don't have to get tourist visas to come in; they can come in for ninety days. Um, that, because of the problems in the world, was tightened up, and so foreign nationals who otherwise qualify to use the visa waiver program are going to lose that privilege if they visit certain countries such as Syria or Iraq. Okay. So moral of the story, try to avoid that, especially if you're a member of the Visa Waiver Program country, unless you're willing to jeopardize it and take this risk. And the one last point that we want to touch upon is the most exciting news. It was about the fact that the EB-5 investor, immigrant investor program, is that it was actually remained unchanged because people were expecting the fees to substantially increase. And the regional center program, which is a vital component of the EB-5 program has been extended now for another year through September 30th, 2016. Um, Again, remember, that's the USCIS fiscal year, which starts October 1st of each year and ends on September 30th. And there have been a number of proposals to dramatically raise the minimum investment requirements for EB-5 filings. However, at least for now, the investment amounts have remained unchanged at $1 million. Uh, for most cases, unless it's 500000 for TEAs or targeted employment areas, which 
uh, generally are economically backward areas or areas which have 150% of unemployment um, or 150% of unemployment compared to the national average uh, or rural areas, et cetera. So with that, I think we've done a fabulous job, if I may say so, with my learned colleagues, Dana DeLott and Joel Janovich, to go over with you all of the incredible and wide changes in the area of employment-based immigration that will affect most of you as employers hiring foreign nationals, whether it's an H1L1 or another non-immigrant visa category. On behalf of myself at the Murthy Law Firm, Sheila Murthy, Dana DeLott, Joel Janovich, and our entire Murthy Law Firm staff, we wish you, your family, and your business associates a wonderful New Year, may 2016 be the best ever year, and may you continue to do amazing things with your business and work with the most awesome immigration law firm in the world, the Murthy Law Firm. Please go to murthy.com for additional information uh, and additional updates and articles and forum and all of the fabulous features that we offer. Have a great day. Thank you.